Hi, this is Tom Field, Vice President of Editorial with Information Security Media Group. I want to welcome you to our 2013 Legal Roundtable, in which I'm talking with some leading information security and privacy attorneys about the issues that we're going to be talking about in the coming year. I've got with me, and I'll introduce now, Lisa Soto, Managing Partner of the Law Firm of Hunton & Williams. Lisa, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. I also have Ronald Rather, a partner at Faruqi, Ireland & Cox. Ron? It's good to be here, Tom. Thank you. And finally, I've got David Nevetta. He's an IT security and privacy attorney and founder of the law firm Information Law Group. David, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So just to start out, I'd like to talk about some of the issues that have occupied your time this year. Let me start with you, Lisa. What have you found to be the top legal issue occupying the bulk of your time in 2012? Tom, unfortunately, it is data breach still. We certainly never expected to be saying this in 2012 going into 2013. As you know, the world of data breach just exploded in 2005, and I thought by now we'd have this well in hand, but we certainly do not. We have handled to date probably over 900 data breaches since 2005, and they appear to me to be continuing absolutely unabated. I think one of the differences, though, that we're seeing is that we are definitely seeing an, an increase in malicious attacks. So companies continue to be caught by system vulnerabilities that existed several years ago. They continue to exist now, but at the same time, we're also seeing cyber criminals out there who are enormously motivated. They're very creative and they're, they're very, very sophisticated. They operate through organized crime rings, so they're carefully orchestrated in their activities. So frankly, we need to do a better job in combating cybercrime, and now we add to the mix advanced persistent threats, which are cyber threats sponsored by nation states. And we also are seeing cyber criminals targeting IP and trade secrets. Ron, I'd toss the same question to you. What's occupied your time this year? Generally the same, so data breaches, but in particular the reactions of various third parties to those breaches. I, I agree with, with Lisa that it kicked off in, in 2005, and what we're seeing is really the evolution of the legal issues surrounding data breach and the growth of interest in a variety of different sectors to those breaches. So I think in 2005, there was certainly interest in some of the breaches, and that interest was focused from the FTC, for example, uh, some of the AGs. Uh, but what we're seeing in 2012 and what I think the trend will continue to demonstrate is that, in particular, the state attorney generals are gearing up and preparing themselves to be more actively involved in looking at breaches and evaluating whether the companies who were the oftentimes victim of those breaches nonetheless uh, need to be reviewed, investigated, and then sometimes brought to an enforcement action or a settlement uh, with respect to those breaches. So I think state AG involvement is certainly growing in 2012. Likewise, we're seeing changes in how the courts are dealing with complaints, claims relating to data breaches. So it really started in, in October 2011 with the Hannaford decision from the First Circuit, uh, although that was trending based on some decisions that were coming out of the Ninth and the Sixth. But ultimately, those cases culminating with Hannaford are, are now finding that plaintiffs have standing 
to bring claims based on data breaches. More recently in the Curry matter in the 11th Circuit, we're seeing not only standing but also sufficient pleading with regard to damages. And what does all that mean? Consequence in litigation is that these cases are now moving beyond the pleading stage where we're all fighting about whether plaintiffs said enough on a piece of paper to be able to engage in discovery to now actually uh, engaging in discovery in these cases and allowing these plaintiffs and their counsel to, to start getting more and more information about how the breaches occurred and as a consequence, I think, increasing the risk profile for companies. And I guess finally, I, you know, I agree with Lisa that one of the, the new trends that we're seeing in 2012 that somewhat is recycling but I think is being bolstered by real variations of that malware. We're seeing terrorists, organized crime, and even governments and companies beginning to see a malware and hacking as an opportunity for them. And David, I'll toss this to you, and I suspect your answer begins with the, the word breaches as well. It does, although I'm going to be a little different with my answers, uh, my answer as well. So in terms of, of data breach, I, I agree with uh, both Lisa and Ron. Uh, it's, it's taken up a lot of time. It always does, and it seems to be some level increasing. Uh, I'm going to even talk actually about a more particular type of breach and in, in, in where it's hitting, and that's uh, the payment card data breach and those types of breaches hitting medium and smaller types of organizations. I've had a lot of those this year, and the challenge there is not only dealing with the notification potentially, but also with working through the car brand uh, assessment processes and fines and penalties. What I'm seeing is, is a lot of uh, point-of-sale attacks by cyber criminals, almost in an automated Henry Ford-like fashion, that are targeting point-of-sale devices, looking for remote access points into those devices, sometimes using default passwords that are known for particular types of law, remote access ports and getting access to a company's point-of-sale systems, putting memory scrapers or memory dumpers right on those systems and taking data in real time and doing it in secret, and again, from a, usually from a distant Eastern European-type com- country. I'm still surprised to see a lot of companies, a lot of smaller and mid-sized companies, still not PCI-compliant and not taking uh, pretty kind of straightforward steps that would prevent some of these types of breaches. In the news, if we, if we want to talk about one in particular, there was a breach involving Barnes and Nobles that involved the pin pads that hit a lot of their point of sale systems. And, and the thing about these attacks is, is usually they're scalable. So if you can find one point of sale system related to a particular company that's set up and configured a certain way and find a weakness, then you can go to a different location and find that point of sale system and get onto that system and start taking card data. So I think perhaps a trend here from an attack point of view is uh, instead of going for the big whales that have the huge data repositories, using a very scalable automated attack to go for smaller uh, repositories of, of, of data and credit card data in particular and attacking those in a, kind of a systematic way. Uh, again, whenever I uh, encounter these breaches, it's pretty amazing some of the ingenuity, actually, that I see in terms of how these attacks are organized and, and, and how they play out. The other area that is not breach-related, which we might touch on a little bit, BYOD bring your own device, and uh, this is more on the compliance side, privacy and data security side, and the incident response side, but the reality that a lot of my clients are dealing with right now is uh, the fact that their employees are pushing the types of devices that they want to use onto the organization, so we're going from a very decentralized type of an approach where Blackberries are bought and, and locked down and provided to employees to a decentralized approach where employees 
uh, one of our new devices coming out are, are demanding that they be able to use that device to either access the company network and or essentially store sensitive information on those devices. And I've done a lot of work helping companies understand the privacy security into response issues there and developing policies and controls to help limit risk and uh, limit compliance obligations. Well, we've talked about a lot here. We've talked about security, certainly, privacy. We've talked about breaches, about mobility, BYOD. Uh, David, I want to ask this question of you, but then I'd love for Ron and Lisa to jump in as well. From your perspective, what do you think has been the biggest security and legal story of the year? This year, we didn't have like a huge Heartland-type breach or a Sony-type breach or even uh, a bunch of anonymous-type of attacks. Uh, finding the big story, is, I think uh, when I was thinking about this question, it's a little more difficult. I think from my point of view, from a legal point of view, I'm not sure it's a big story, but it's a story worth keeping your eye on, is uh, regulatory enforcement. This year we saw California create a special office uh, within the AG's office for purposes of privacy enforcement. The AG's been active, uh, getting back to mobility, and highlighting the need, for instance, uh, for mobile applications that have privacy policies and and uh, engaging in proper privacy handling, or information handling practices. Uh, we saw HHS much more active in terms of fines and penalties uh, and even uh, just uh, run-of-the-mill types of breaches where they were much more proactive in, in following up after getting notification under HIPAA high tech and doing a little more investigation. So if I had to pick a story uh, that's a, a big story or an up-and-coming story, would that would be uh, beyond litigation, increased regulatory scrutiny, and I think in 2013, we may see even more of that. I think that if I had to uh, I feel similarly to David, that there really are so many stories and there hasn't been one gigantic story. But I think if I had to choose one, I would focus on the DDoS attacks on banks recently. I think what we've seen is, is a, a really a seismic shift in the world of data breach and hacking from uh, back in 2005, a, a focus for malicious actors on personally identifiable information and the use of that data to commit account fraud and identity theft. Now we're seeing cyber crime and cyber attacks at a whole different level where we have very organized systemic attacks on half a dozen or so or a dozen of the biggest banks in the United States, uh, clearly done for some sort of political aim in mind. These are These are very much indicative of where we're going to go in the future. The hackers that were involved in the bank hacks suggested that the actions that they undertook were in retaliation for the bank's enforcement of Western uh, economic sanctions against Iran. There are many other reasons that certainly we could we could point to for these DDoS attacks, but they were extremely disruptive of the bank's uh, websites and networks, and uh, and I think we are seeing a trend. And I generally agree uh, with you know, what both Lisa and, and David have said in terms of you know, really what is the focus. So it's not a specific breach, it's not a specific company, but it's starting to see some of these general trends. And I think I mentioned the, the AG enforcement actions. Uh, that's certainly a big one as well as I think the shift in the courts and how they're perceiving complaints and claims that are being brought by plaintiffs. And, and quite frankly, I think plaintiffs' counsel are becoming wiser uh, in reacting to the decisions that have come out in the past, uh, beginning to focus on types of claims that they perceive will provide them with more success in the courts. So specifically, claims that are based on violations of statutes, where those statutes include 
damage provisions uh, within the structure uh, so that if you can prove uh, liability, uh, the burden of having to prove causation and specific damages is removed because the statute has provided that uh, in its language. And I think uh, as a consequence, litigation arising from breaches and then the, the ultimate resolution of that litigation is and will continue to be a big story. Um, likewise, the extension uh, of the security boundaries, so it's not just the BYOD uh, employee-owned device issue that David referenced. Uh, we're certainly dealing with that uh, and seeing that as an extension uh, of security and, and what a company needs to address, but also uh, outsourcing in general. And specifically with regard to that, you know, I mentioned the firmware issue, and it's, it's come up somewhat in the pin pad hacking uh, types of cases, not just recently, but also a couple of years ago. But it's this concept of uh, even with firmware uh, and other devices that you know most recently have been built outside of the country, and the concern, and I think a legitimate concern, that malware is being embedded uh, within those devices, uh, either by country states. Uh, organized crime uh, or otherwise, that those are being embedded at the time that that firm, firmware is being manufactured. It's being shipped back to the United States, and it's sitting maybe in our in our water uh, treatment facilities, uh, power plants, uh, with it within the infrastructure of a company, maybe even an HVAC unit, but sitting somewhere where, uh, you know, with the push of the button remotely from uh, across the pond, the, the bad stuff can be released into the system uh, because a lot of these systems are now integrated. It allows it to infiltrate with this malware throughout the entire company or the organization. And it, you know, it can be a worst-case scenario type of event. As we start to see, I think we will start to see some of these worst-case scenarios come into fruition. So I'd like to add to one thing that actually uh, Lisa raised the, the DDoS attacks on banks. And I wanted to kind of raise a potentially more of a kind of a cutting edge type of, of concept that uh, we've been talking about with the American Bar Association, the Information Security Committee, and that's the concept or, or, or the idea of what's being called hacking back. And so uh, taking the DDoS attack scenario, if you're an organization who is suffering a, a malservice attack and you're able to pinpoint from where that attack is coming, where the emails are flooding from uh, in order to block your system or what have you, some lawyers and, and some security professionals are exploring the idea of when it would be appropriate or, or potentially uh, how you can make an argument for the legality of um, actually going into and hacking the systems uh, that are attacking you and disabling the attack. And so there's a lot of uh, talk and some articles on this concept. Uh, and, and the idea being why as an organization, if you can identify the, you know, essentially the source of an attack, do you need to take uh, the harm, potentially even lost revenue, that arises during that attack when you can potentially disable the attack, perhaps do it without harming the computer that you're actually going after and hacking into, and uh, hopefully then everyone uh, arises out of the situation uh, intact on some level. Now, the problem here is uh, many times uh, the, the actual attacks are being launched from, from basically innocent computers, people whose computers have been taken over by botnets uh, and then are being used to uh, launch a denial of service attack could be a company, could be an individual. So what is the uh, legality of, of uh, getting unauthorized access to that computer, shutting down the attack? What if something goes wrong, you take out the system or cause damage data on the computer? What kind of liability issues exist there? 
Um, I think this might be kind of a cutting-edge issue going into 2013. Some companies uh, may want to kind of take the, the hack into their own hands and uh, attack back. A great thought. I'd love to give some uh, some feedback from Ron and Lisa as well. The concept of hacking back, what are your thoughts on it? It is an interesting concept, and it's certainly something that theoretically we've been talking. I think the you know the legal uh, consequences, or I guess the legal permissibility of being able to uh, hack into somebody else's system, especially where, and the example that David presented, where uh, the system may not be owned by the actual criminal, it may be a system, you know, my grandma's system that was hijacked. Uh, and if that's what's being hacked into, you know, you're now, you know, the equivalent of bombing Switzerland uh, in a war. Right. It, but but I but I think tactically, you know, it raises some. You know, I think Stutnex is a very important example for uh, everyone to continue talking about, not only in the case of nation-sponsored cyber attacks, but also generally with regard to the hacking back concept, because uh, you know it takes. In the case of Stubnik, it probably took a considerable amount of resource and ingenuity to build that malware. The fact of the matter is is that once it's released, it's much easier to reverse engineer and recode that that malware and turn it back and use it against the company or the individual or the country that originated that malware. Um, so in other words, you take something that otherwise might not be developed but for having uh, limitless resources you decide to use it, uh, but as a consequence, you've now put this piece of malware out there that is can be very detrimental, very harmful, hard to get rid of. Uh, you've given aid to your enemies uh, by, by putting that out there and allowing them to easily re-engineer that and reuse it for their own, uh, oftentimes, illegal and harmful purposes. So I, I think those same sort of higher picture lessons uh, could be important for companies to consider when they're thinking about hacking back. No, I think that's a very important point. Um, so Stuxnet was very sophisticated and highly destructive. Uh, the, the point of, that you've just made about the virus now being out there and essentially being uh, being able to uh, to be disseminated in other ways and you know catching like a virus would do is uh, is, is very difficult uh, issue to manage i would just really uh, i think you know these very destructive weapons like stuxnet are really only enhanced by the more ordinary attacks like the denial of service attacks which are much more run-of-the-mill but highly disruptive uh, for those, those companies that are that are the subject of the attacks. And of course, we just saw that the, the Palestinian supporters are attack, attacked Israeli websites yesterday through denial-of-service attacks. And what we found is that, you know, even uh, since even before 2005 or around that period, we saw denial-of-service attacks really meant to be uh, a frontal assault to distract uh, the resources of the company away from the true attack, which was a backdoor attack into some other system. So if, if, if I know that you have a, a limited amount of resources that you can dedicate to defending your wall, and I use the denial of service uh, to use up those resources, then it leaves open uh, other gaps in the system that I can then take advantage of and, and get to what I really want, is, which is that data that's behind that wall. Um, so I was I was interested to to see or hear whether uh, any of the financial institutions saw those secondary or tertiary types of attacks that came behind the denial of service 
that obviously made the publicity um, that obviously came to light to the public uh, because the denial of service is so visible. Right, I'm not able to log into my bank account, so as a consequence, I'm twittering and getting on Facebook, and it gets a lot of media attention. But the secondary and tertiary attacks likely wouldn't come to to the the light of day in terms of the media and public attention. And that brings us to the end of this first part of our discussion with our three attorneys. In our next part, we'll talk about global privacy legislation. Until then, for Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.